Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, there was plenty of talk about wages, the environment, childcare, renewable energy and housing in last night's budget, but there was no mention of plans for our future food production. The only references to agriculture were policies to buy back water from farmers along the Murray River and the cancellation of funding to the Hell's Gate Dam in North Queensland, which would have irrigated 60,000 hectares of otherwise arid land. So the new government's only agricultural policies in this budget are to reduce the sector, not grow it. Which is strange, because food is quickly becoming one of the key global topics of concern. The United Nations World Food Program says the number of people facing food insecurity has risen from 135 million in 53 countries to 345 million in 82 countries in just two years. That's an increase of 150% in people facing starvation. The World Food Programme blames the crisis on the war in Ukraine, unstable climate caused by La Nina and the COVID lockdowns. And it is already calling 2022 the quote, year of unprecedented hunger. Here's a graph of average staple food costs since 1961 from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. The orange line is the actual price of food and the yellow line is the price adjusted for a variety of external factors. They both rise sharply in the last two years, which is when COVID struck. Locking most of the world's population in their homes and severely restricting exports between nations was obviously a big contributor to that price rise. All around the world, people are starting to realise that the lockdowns might one day be seen as one of the most pointless, self-inflicted catastrophes in human history. Compounding the effect of the lockdown was the war in Ukraine, one of the world's leading producers of wheat. Apart from the turmoil the country is in, many of Ukraine's wheat storage silos have also been damaged or destroyed without which there is no reason for farmers to plant a crop. One report says Ukraine's wheat production is now down by 40%, or 19.5 million tonnes. Then there's the cost of fertiliser. Russia is a major supplier of potash, ammonia and urea, which have been restricted by international sanctions against the country, pushing up their price. Here's a graph from the, World Bank, uh, from the World Bank of input costs to fertilizer. This is why some farmers can't afford to plant crops anymore. In January, Bloomberg reported that China had started hoarding food. Quote, by mid-2022, China will hold 69% of the world's corn reserves, 60% of its rice, and 51% of its wheat. By China's own estimation, these reserves are at a historically high level and are contributing to higher global food prices. The quote goes on, for China, such stockpiles are necessary to ensure it won't be at the mercy of major food exporters such as the US. But other countries, especially in the developing world, might ask why less than 20% of the world's population is hoarding so much of its food, unquote. 
Well, we may ask that, but we might also ask why we are squandering so much of our own food production. Ethanol, for example, has become a fashionable additive to petrol because it supposedly reduces emissions. But a study found this year that its production caused 25% more emissions than plain old petrol. And what is ethanol produced from? Corn. We are literally burning food in our cars in a deluded attempt to alleviate climate change, which doesn't exist anyway. And while the COVID pandemic was a fake crisis, the bird flu pandemic is not. 40 40, 47 million chickens and turkeys have been killed or culled in the United States alone as a result of bird flu, not only reducing the amount of meat produced, but also eggs, which are a common and affordable source of protein. But if 2022 is, according to the World Food Program, the year of unprecedented hunger, next year could be worse. Author and blogger Michael Schneider has posted on his website, quote, I am trying to sound the alarm about this as loudly as I can. The global food crisis just continues to intensify and things are going to get really bad in 2023, unquote. But now let's get back to Labor's interim federal budget, which it brought down last night. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek was so impressed and excited about it that she sent this over to her colleague, Treasurer Jim's, Jim Chalmers. The note reads, quote, Dear, Tim, Dear Team Chalmers, thanks so much for your hard work on this budget. You are now officially part of Labor history. Be proud. All the best. Plibersek office. Notice she said they were part of Labor history and not Australian history. That's because Labor, and in some ways almost all politicians who manage to find themselves in Canberra, don't really care about the country. They just care about their side winning office and doing whatever it takes to stay there. To Chalmers, that means producing a budget that focuses on the fashionable causes like renewables and the environment, which is Plibersek's portfolio. If Plibersek really cared about the country, she'd realise how ironic it looks to congratulate Chalmers for the budget using, of all things, a basket of food. The note may as well have read, nice work, Jim. Now, let them eat cake. You might recall the story of Andrew Thorburn, the businessman who was appointed CEO of the Essendon AFL footy club earlier this month, only to be virtually sacked 24 hours later for being a member of a particular Christian church. The reason for the sacking was never very clear, only that Premier Dan Andrews was offended by comments made by a pastor at the church before Thorburn even joined the congregation. Such is the cult of Dan Andrews that his indignation quickly led to Essendon saying Thorburn's appointment was no longer tenable. My next guest, Lee Jones, had a similar experience six years ago, which also cost him his job. It drove him eventually to politics, and he's now 
running for the state's upper house for the Family First Party, and he joins me now. Lee Jones, welcome to ADH TV. Thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. First, can you recall for us the circumstances that led you to losing your job six years ago? Um, look, I, I can't talk in a lot of detail because uh, the circumstances are, are protected under a deed of covenant. Uh, and I must say, I, I have no ill will towards um, the organisation of people that, that, uh, that did that. Um, but in simple terms, um, uh, there was a, an issue that arose within the organisation. Um, uh, and it seemed that, uh, that, that the values uh, that I held in my faith uh, were not compatible uh, with the, the organisation's preferences. Uh, and so um, my time there came to an end. Can you elaborate a little bit, though? I mean, what, what sort of values were in question at the time? Um, the... Um, uh, the issue was, was uh, around um, the, safe, the, the the content of the Safe Schools program. Um, the uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I was challenged around um, uh, my my views on on the content of that program. Uh, now, of course, the Safe Schools program was was designed as uh, originally was supposed to have had the intent of being an anti-bullying program, and. Uh, it's true to say that that um, I have a, a strong desire that no one gets bullied. Um, I remember in my high school days, I went to an all-boys grammar school uh, back in the UK, uh, and I was the uh, the bullying target of the alpha male in the school, the captain of the the, uh, the rugby team. Uh, and, and my life in that school was pretty unpleasant for, for a long period of time. Um, I don't want to see anyone bullied. Uh, and don't want to see um, anyone going through that kind of experience. But the reality is that the Safe Schools program teaches content that goes way beyond concepts of bullying uh, and speaks to gender and sexual ideologies which are not consistent with my faith. Um, uh, and it's those components of the program that um, uh, that I, I disagree with and wouldn't. Uh, and the phrase I used was, uh, I, you know, I didn't want my children to be taught those things. Uh, and that was that was the sum, the sum set of it. And just and without going into too much detail, why did you leave? Were you sacked, or did you choose to leave? Did it become untenable or uncomfortable? What happened? My employment was terminated. Well, okay. So now let's get back to the present. Or well, to a quote from the recent past: Former Prime Minister Paul Keating once famously said, "When you change the government, you change the country." I always thought that was a pretty pretentious thing for a politician to say, but I'm not sure. I, I, I think it might be quite true when it, in regards to Victoria. Do you think Victoria is a different state under Dan Andrews and does he have something like a cult following? Look, I think there's a strange thing going on in Victoria, Fred. Um, uh, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is that um, uh, for the first time yesterday, I saw uh, a Dan Andrews um, uh, digital advert uh, popped up on my social feeds. And it spoke about um, railway crossings removed and, and, and hospitals and plans to uh, hire more nurses than I think exists across all of Australia or some other magical figure. Um, very much a, sort of an emphasis on um, uh, the bricks and mortar in a sense. There is not one iota of claims that he's making about his government's achievements in the social uh, sense, in the in the social policy sense. 
Uh, what happens, uh, what seems to me to be happening is, is that um, there's this veneer of, hey, look at this, look at this, there's all these magical things happening and all this building going on. And, um, uh, but, but I sort of don't look over there, don't, don't look at what, what, we, what we're doing behind the scenes. Um, and, and I find there's, there's almost like a, a kind of blindness uh, operating in Victoria where uh, the, the, consequence, uh, the consequences, the impacts of lockdown, um, the, 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 the realities of the policies that have been put in place by this government uh, to divide um, uh, kids from their parents, uh, to divide parents between themselves and to break, up, break apart communities, that, that's just flown under the radar somehow. Um, That's a good point. I mean, he, he does sell himself as, a, as an infrastructure premier when it comes to an election, but you're right. He's really known for his social changes, isn't he? Well, I think we have the most radical, um, uh, seriously radical left-wing government um, uh, in Victoria and indeed in Australia's history. Um, but uh, again, that, that radicalism is sort of flying behind, below the radar. Um, and I think if you thought it was really good uh, public policy that, that we should all be celebrating, he would be he would be uh, stating that writ large in the way he promotes his achievements, but he, he obviously doesn't. Uh, and what, what I find curious is that the, the complicity of the, uh, the mainstream media in effectively hiding the, the consequences of the legislation he's bringing in uh, mean that when you talk to regular folk about the implications or, or the realities of the legislation that's in, what's happening in our schools, what's happening in our hospitals, um, the, the usual reaction I get uh, first is, I, I don't believe you, uh, that can't be true. Uh, and, and yet it is. Um, schools can now effectively, uh, through the, the Doctors in Schools program, uh, transition your child from one gender to another um, uh, without your consent uh, as a parent, and indeed without your knowledge. And I, I find these things unthinkable um, is there any parent who, if they knew that that was policy, would vote for that? Well, Lee, you're, you're a man of faith yourself, but uh, do you recognise elements of faith in Dan's, in Dan's following? I mean, d does his reverence have a kind of religious overtone to it? Um, I think, um, look, uh, I'm not close to very many uh, Dan fans. Um, but there seems to be, uh, with the whole sort of Deflon, Teflon Dan concept, um, for some reason, uh, all the things that we, we are, um, we've experienced in Victoria, uh, all the issues with IBAC and so on, I don't quite understand uh, why this, 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 this corruption, uh, why this attack on the family, why this attack on religious freedoms, why this experimentation with, with wild gender uh, and sexuality ideologies isn't sticking uh, either to him or to his government. Uh, and it seems that um, the, the only explanation for that is, is, is you're right, it's almost like a, a religion of Dan. Um, uh, it's, so, it's, well, it, let, it, let's just get back to you though. So soon after you lost your job six years ago, you uh, gravitated towards the Liberal Party and now you're representing Family First. What attracted you to the Liberals and why did you shift from them to Family First? Um, uh, it's kind of confession time now. Um, so uh, I actually I, I met with a, um, a Liberal Party MP shortly after my experience, uh, who suggested that um, hey join the Liberal Party uh, because 
you can use uh, politics, if you like, to, to defend your, your values. Uh, and on a prima facie basis, that seemed like a really good idea. Um, how little did I know? Um, so it seems that the, uh, the Liberals have completely abandoned the field when it comes to defending traditional values. Um, uh, people of, uh, of all faiths, uh, and they've, they've just jumped onto the um, uh, jumped onto the uh, alternate um, bandwagon. Um, they're not uh, fighting for us around um, any of the stuff that's going on in schools. They're not fighting for us uh, around the Change and Suppression Act. They're not fighting for us around uh, the horrors of late-term abortion. Um, uh, none of that. Um, and and so zero for that uh, matter. Yeah, look, um, uh, that, that's just an, a, another form of, uh, of extremism in some ways. Um, yeah. So uh, what's Family First taking to the electorate? What's Family First offering? Uh, look, we're, we're focusing on the things which are profoundly important to us. Um, uh, we, are, uh, we are focusing on, on trying to hold back uh, this tide of, um, uh, of gender ideology uh, and of um, LGBTQ indoctrination within our schools, starting with very, very young children. Uh, we want to fight against uh, the, the, uh, the ability of schools to, to teach things and do things to your children without parental knowledge or consent. Um, uh, we think it's ridiculous that, you, that, that a parent um, may not know about things which are going on, which are changing your child's life forever. Um, uh, we're fighting for uh, uh, religious freedom. In particular, we want to make sure that organisations that, um, that that are faith-based um, have the right to hire people consistent with their faith. Um, no one expects um, uh, the the Pride Centre in Melbourne to hire radically conservative Christians um, or radically conservative Muslims or anything like that, because um, in in the most cases uh, those people will, will not have beliefs consistent with uh, the Pride Centre's values. We, we recognise so that. Just, so just just for the viewers' benefit, though, can you explain what the Pride Centre is? Oh, the Pride Centre has been established um, uh, really to, to promote um, LGBTQ uh, uh, ideology uh, in Melbourne. Um, uh, I think there's there's a stated purpose for it, but uh, it's quite clear what that's all about. And one of the one of the reasons that um, for me personally, uh, I'm not interested in supporting Matthew Guy anymore is that he's not only um, continuing with the funding for that Pride Centre, but he's promised to fund uh, two lawyers um, uh, for that centre as well. Now, these will be activist lawyers uh, who have um, uh, who will be out there chasing down people uh, who dare to uh, to to speak out against the, the current LGBTQ. Um, a doctrine that, that's being mandated upon our state. That will make it very, very difficult for people to, to speak what's on their hearts and minds. And we are in a state now where it's ne there's never been a bigger gap between what you, you think and believe and what you feel you can say without being attacked either in social media or even legally. This is very thin ice, that, but it shouldn't be. So let's just be clear. You don't actually object to gay people, you know, choosing their own life. Um, you just don't. What what would you object to? What, is there anything about the, the Pride Centre that you object to? Look, um, for, for, for people outside uh, of our faith, we, we don't, really, don't want to impose the expectations of our faith or indeed any other faith uh, on those people. Um, People, the, the wonderful thing about um, our society is that we are already legally free of any form of discrimination, um, uh, and that's great. 
Um, what we don't want to do is, is have ideologies imposed upon us. Uh, and what we don't want to do is see people dragged off to, to courts and ultimately to jail for carrying views which have been traditional in our society for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That the changes in, in, in what we're allowed to believe have come about in a very short period of time in these last few years. The change has been remarkable in its rapidity and it's been frightening in its rapidity as well. Um, because we've, we've seen in the past that where rapid change happens like this, it's very rarely for the good. Um, so so yeah, bad things happen uh, when good people do not feel free to speak out. Uh, and I would say to your, to your viewers, if you've ever felt like you wanted to say something or believed a thing but held back from saying it because you were worried about the response you would get on social media or in public or even legally or in your workplace, then, then you get the problem we now have. Uh, when I first arrived in Australia back in 1992, uh, we could uh, have conversations, we could have debates, we could agree to disagree, and then we could go and have a beer together afterwards, and it was fine. Sounds like uh, a good country no to me, mate. I wish it was like that again. Now, how do you uh, think the, um, how, do you, how, how do you hope the outcome will be of this election? Do you, do you hope that Matthew Guy wins, even though you've left the Liberal Party? Uh, uh, being honest, from my perspective, I, I guess it would be the uh, question of the, the lesser of two evils. Although, to be honest, there's not a lot in it for us if Matthew Guy wins, other than perhaps a slowing down of the radical agenda. I mean, I've already pointed out to you a, a policy that, that uh, Matthew has, has come out and stated about uh, funding uh, uh, activist lawyers for the Pride Centre. He's also come out very publicly and said that he won't be rolling back the Change and Suppression Act. Um, look, the, the NHS published a piece uh, in the UK uh, just earlier on this week that said the vast majority of children that ex experience gender confusion will simply grow out of it, okay? Uh, and yet in Victoria, if, if little Johnny comes home and says, Mummy, Daddy, I, I think I might be, I want to be little Janie now, for you to say simple common sense, scientifically backed, uh, evidence-oriented stuff such as uh, hang on, let's just see how this plays out. Don't rush to do anything that makes any changes now. See how you go, we'll, we'll walk with you on the journey. Uh, if you do anything other than affirm little Johnny's desire to become little Jenny, you can go to jail. Now that, that is anti-science, it's anti-parent, it's anti the kid, because I, I think we're gonna see a generation of kids who are gonna be encouraged uh, to roll into uh, permanent changes to their body off the back of the teachings that that, uh, that they receive in school and the social contagion effect. When you imagine that uh, the, the cool girl suddenly declares in, in class, hey, I want to be a boy, you just watch the contagion effect roll and we're seeing evidence exactly. now across schools. Exactly. Lee, there's so much of this we need to talk about. We're going to have to get you back on sometime. But uh, we've run out of time tonight. Thanks so much. No worries. Pleasure. Thanks, Fred. Appreciate the time. That's Lee Jones, a family first candidate for the upper house in the Victorian state election to be held on November 26. Well, the big surprise from the budget is that it got a tick of approval from the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, which means it passed the boardroom test, but it didn't pass the pub test given that most ordinary Australians will be forced to sacrifice schooners and sherries to pay for useless solar and batteries. 
So much for Labor being the party of the people. Even Stan Grant at the ABC zoomed in on the budget's inequity, saying the house-owning superannuated rich will do fine, but, quote, the poor will have to pay more to keep the lights on, to buy shoes for the kids, to put fuel in the car and keep the fridge stocked. Put fuel in the car? Do try to keep up, Stan. The poor will have to pay more to charge the car using extortionate renewables. Petrol will be a nostalgic memory. Grant also neglects to mention that the poor could probably have benefited more from the lazy extra $84 million earmarked for his broadcaster, the ABC. This is a standard budget tactic to keep the national broadcaster's woke commentators on side. Did it work? Was the budget woke enough? Well, yes and no. One headline on the ABC website screamed, quote, environmental advocates say the budget hasn't gone far enough on climate change. Then again, Laura Tingle went along with the line that the budget helps explain the catastrophic cost of climate change. No, not the cost of families being forced to pay for renewables. Rather, it's the increasing cost that climate change is already imposing on the budget and the economy. Quote, it covers the costs associated with responding to extreme weather events which stretch well beyond disaster payment support to their impact on economic activity, on infrastructure and on health, social and community impacts. In other words, exaggerate the cost of current weather patterns and suddenly the benefits of future man-made weather patterns become cheaper. Hey presto, climate policies are better. The logic is impeccable. It's like leaving your front door open so you don't have to replace it when burglars break it down to steal your TV. The other big concern for ABC wokesters is of course children, or the need for women not to have their careers unfairly restrained by them. ABC Radio National's Patricia Carvelis excitedly predicted that the budget heralded an exciting new era in women's policies. Quote, the change is in its infancy, but if executed as promised, it has the potential to change the old paradigm that women's policies are all about children and family. The change is in its infancy? Is that a Freudian slip? And is Carvelis overlooking the fact that children and family are the primary goal for the majority of women? She goes on to warn, though, that women, women like her still struggle to reach the top in the male-dominated world. Quote, it's a big task to achieve genuine equality and it will take a concentrated effort and commitment to ensuring that policies no longer further entrench sexism and start creating a level playing field. Well, she can start creating a level playing field by advocating for more female plumbers, sewage workers, and garbage collectors. Some people would say the word hypocrisy is used too much these days. Well, we here at ADHTV say it's not used enough, only because there's so much of it about and there's no other word to describe it. 
Almost everything the left loves is infused with the sort of double standards that make you wonder if they are capable of perceiving any reality at all. They purport to fix climate change by flying around in private jets. They burn down black neighborhoods in the name of racial justice and they revere indigenous culture on social media platforms that would never exist if Western civilization hasn't, hadn't rescued those indigenous people from pre-scientific barbarity. Calling out this kind of hypocrisy might be as easy as shooting fish in a barrel, but we still need to do it lest our beloved leftist friends convince themselves they are being rational and lose their grip on reality altogether. The latest example is a doozy. On September 17 last year, Greens leader Adam Bant used his obnoxious soapbox to climb up on his pretentious high horse to post this message on Twitter. If Prime Minister Scott Morrison doesn't act today, the Greens will seek to move a no-confidence motion in Christian Porter when Parliament resumes. Call on the PM to turf him out of Cabinet. Well, just as a background, you'll recall that Porter was the Attorney General in the Morrison government early last year when the ABC published an unsubstantiated rape allegation against an unknown federal minister. Porter identified himself as the alleged perpetrator. The, ale the allegation was flimsy at best and was never proved. Porter sued the ABC for defamation, but the case was caught up in technicalities and settled out of court, which cost Porter several hundred thousand dollars. This was paid by an anonymous donor, which enraged Bant, hence the tweet. But he is not so outraged by his own senator, Lydia Thorpe's arguably worse shenanigans. Let's get former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman in to discuss it. Campbell, welcome. Guy Fred, thanks for having me. First, Campbell, Lydia Thorpe was serving on a law enforcement committee that was investigating bikey gangs, while at the same time dating a leader of the rebels bikey gang. What should Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, have done? Well, firstly, just for viewers, I mean, these parliamentary committees often, uh, and particularly ones like this, have uh, briefings on quite confidential matters to do with law enforcement, you know, like, uh, and security. And so there's no doubt that sensitive information would have been in the normal course of business presented to the members of that committee. Uh, Senator Thorpe uh, has been a member of that committee but not revealed that she was involved with this individual. So, you know, there is a big question mark and as a result, I say that uh, she should stand down. Um, it is quite serious. She shouldn't be a member, if you, if you like, of the front bench uh, of the Greens. That That's clear. And so this is a test of leadership for Bant and it's a test of whether he is... Uh, you know, fair dinkum about integrity or a hypocrite. Yeah, because, you know, as you just pointed out, you know, we had we had unsubstantiated allegations about um, Christian Porter. Uh, they all went off about that. He should stand down. He should go. He should leave Parliament. But here we've got an unsubstantiated allegation. I guess uh, about uh, Senator Thorpe uh, that she has in some way. Uh, inappropriately been on that committee or, or heard information, which is yet to be proven unproven. That's the point I'm making. Yep. I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt, but I'm just saying that's the test. The Adam Bant test is you got to stand down. Well, you know, well, Bant, <laughs> just <laughs> a Bant. 
stand down. Well, <laughs> stand down your member and show leadership. Exactly. I mean, you can't be fair and more reasonable at that. I mean, you know, if, if, on the other hand, he had been sensible about the Porter thing and not engaged in sort of 2022 Salem witch trials sort of form of justice, well, then, you know, I'd, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt on on uh, Senator Thorpe. Well, yeah, fair again, enough. We, you know, but we've, I got mean, to be, we've got to be fair and reasonable about these things, yeah. Well, Campbell, he's come out today calling uh, Lydia Thorpe a, quote, incredible fighter. How do you how do you take that? Well, that's great. I mean, you know, um, you know, this, yeah, it's, it's great to back members of your team, but again, this bloke should look in the mirror. He really should. Yep. Adam Banch should go and look in the mirror and maybe count to 10 and just sort of really think long and hard about what hypocrisy means and about his behaviour and his comments and then his own senator's um, failure to disclose this relationship. You know, so it, it really just is it, it is it is symptomatic of, of the left. I mean, it's like Tony Abbott stands in front of uh, some people who are waving signs saying, ditch the witch. Uh, he's never allowed to forget it. That's, you know, that was somehow him being, you know, a misogynist. Uh, but, you know, we can see any number of examples where uh, union officials hurl vile abuse at, uh, you know, uh, female members of the coalition uh, or campaign workers from the Labor Party or the Greens hurl abuse at, uh, at women on the conservative side. And that's okay because, you know, the way the left think about this, mate, is they consider them to be bad people. And you're allowed to, you're allowed to, you know, be inappropriate. You're allowed to uh, be sexist, uh, misogynist, uh, vile, uh, use, use terrible slurs if, you know, they're a bad person from the right. As a, as a famous uh, American conservative once said, they think we're evil. We just think they're wrong. Which pretty much sums <laughs> it's it pretty up. Much, it's pretty much that sums it up. It doesn't do Yeah, mate. yeah. Um, apparently the only person at fault here is Bant's chief of staff, who didn't tell him about it at the time. Bant says the chief of staff has been counselled. But I think, uh, I think the problem goes further than having to counsel your chief of staff. As you say, it's well, all it about, it's well, all it about hypocrisy. Yeah, well, in the last three or four years, yeah, we've seen serious allegations about... Uh, you know, uh, harassment, sexual harassment within the Greens uh, political party that, again, the leadership of the Greens, again, just wanted to, you know, just sweep under the carpet. You know, they they do not have a good track record uh, of dealing with uh, internal problems or people in their team acting inappropriately. I'll just say this. I have been absolutely sitting back, watching with a wry grin on my face, whenever I hear them talking about this national corruption uh, body. You know, they've been strong advocates for that. And I'll, I'll say, mark my words, mate, the people who will be caught up in this, you know, who will really come a cropper will be people in the Greens, will be people from the Australian Labor Party in the federal parliament. It's it's inevitable. And I just, I, you know, and, and, and this whole thing, we're not here to talk about this this afternoon, but the whole thing, is, is a bad idea, as we can see from what's happened, particularly in, say, New South Wales. Uh, so, you know, good luck to them. They wanted it. They're going to get it. Uh, I'll be looking, for example, as a private citizen for opportunities to refer Labor ministers and indeed members of the Greens political party uh, when I see things like this happen. I look forward 
with relish to referring to them. <laughs> and, the and, the viewers, and the viewers will hear about it first here on ADHTV2, Campbell. We'll look forward to that. So now let's move to Queensland. The government is boasting about solving the housing crisis. How many houses has it built? <laughs> well, we had a, a state minister the other day, uh, mate, who, who in the middle of a press conference uh, you know, just proudly proclaimed, well, look, we've delivered 3,000 uh, new public uh, housing uh, sort of homes. And I just think, well, Fred, let's just look at it. They've almost been in office eight years in January, eight years, closer to eight years than seven and a half. That's not many new homes over eight years. And I am smiling about this, but you know, only because of the politics, the, the political charade that it is. I'm not smiling when it comes to thinking about people who need a roof over their heads. Uh, who are the victims of a government that won't deliver. You know, uh, they should have delivered 3,000 homes a year, Fred. Indeed. They should have, and they could have Indeed. done even more if they'd set it up with the private sector, if they cleared the roadblocks, the red tape and bureaucracy that now stops homes being built and also makes them more expensive. Indeed. That's what we need to do to deal with the housing crisis around the country, by the way. Well, the other thing that you often hear in this, uh, when in reference to this housing crisis, is the term affordable homes, which is a euphemism for homes that look like cell blocks. You know, I'm, a lot of those 3,000 homes, I'm sure, were of the affordable variety. Anyway, let's, talk, let's move to Canberra and staying in Queensland, but... In reference to the budget last night, the, the budget cut $5.4 billion of proposed funding for the uh, Hell's Gate Dam near Townsville, which is 2,100 gigalitres and would have irrigated 60,000 hectares of farmland. Now, how much of a blow is this to North Queensland, Campbell? Look, I think it's a real kick in the guts for Queensland um, and it just shows very early in the life of the Albanese government that they're, they're, they're sort of southern-centric. You know, this is a government for, for Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra and it, they don't care about, you know, people in Queensland. And, you know, these projects like Hellsgate Dam, the Urana Dam, uh, another one is actually a, a small little dam uh, called the Emu Swamp a dam near uh, Stanthorpe um, in southern Queensland, almost on the border with New South Wales. All these projects had great business cases. They were really important for agriculture, uh, also for mining for the, those northern dams and the very future of um, the economies uh, in the regions of Queensland. And they just shouldn't have been slashed like this. Uh, you know, I, I mean, there's been the, the mayor of uh, the, the sort of the southern regional downs uh, has been fighting for the best part of 10 years now for Emu Swamp. I know he will be bitterly disappointed, him and his council, because this provides um, much-needed irrigation water to one of the literal, you know, salad bowls and citrus bowls, fruit bowls of, of Australia. When, when the southern states are out of production, the Stanthorpe area produces huge quantities of... Of, of fruit uh, uh, for, for, for markets right across Australia, particularly in the southern states. So for I think it was about $150 million, $160 million, you know, we, we could have seen the, the assurance of water supply to that vital agricultural production. Do you have any idea why the government won't back these projects? 
I'm I'm just thinking it's because they've got uh, what I'd call LNP, you know, Liberal National Party paw prints all over them. I think that's the issue. Mind you, I think the the Mayor of Townsville, Labor, uh, Labor identity, Mayor Jenny Hill, I think she'll probably have some things to say uh, about, uh, you know, some of the northern uh, sort of a dam and irrigation projects because they're vitally important. So I hope she does stand up and, and speak her mind on this one. Yeah. Okay. Now let's turn to British politics because you were in London in July when Prime Minister Boris Johnson was supposedly forced to pull a pin and you saw some of the ensuing competition among Conservative MPs to replace him. Now you are pretty impressed by Rishi Sunak from what you saw at that time. He's now got finally got the job after Liz Trust temporarily <laughs> occupied it. What, what makes you so impressed by Rishi Sunak? Oh, look, I guess, look, we were in the UK, as you said, when the contest was on. And firstly, the Conservative Party's mechanism for uh, selecting a PM in those circumstances is just a disaster, to, 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 to state the obvious, that, you know, that there was a lame duck prime minister and then a process that went on for week after week after week, where they basically had all these sort of uh, debates and forums and they proceeded to belt each other up, which didn't really do a lot for the unity of the government or the way that the community viewed them. But when I saw Truss, I was really concerned about uh, an individual who has had different positions over the course of their lives quite in quite dramatic fashion. I mean, you know, she was you know, sort of, she questioned the value of the monarchy, then she was a uh, supporter of the monarchy, she, she, was against, uh, she was against leaving the EU and then she was for Brexit uh, and she started off as a Liberal Democrat which I am, by the way, these days, <laughs> but then ended up yeah. as a conservative. Yeah. So I, I, well, I'd say we're the true liberals, Fred. But anyway, so in contrast, I saw with with uh, the new PM, uh, with Rishi, uh, someone who seemed to have it all together. Um, I know there are already, of course, people, and that's such as the process, sort of, uh, sort of firing shot and shell into him already for various reasons. But he just seems to me that he's an accomplished individual who uh, hopefully will provide that unity and give clear direction to the country. And by the way, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the financial markets sort of being more in charge of the, the UK than, than uh, you know, the PM or the government. Well, I'll just make this point. If you, if this is to all of us, if you don't want to be beholden to the financial, financial markets, don't run massive deficits and borrow money from foreign investors because that's what's happened here. You know, the, the, they, they, they have a huge amount of debt. It's held by offshore interests, by the private sector, and indeed probably other governments, and you are then a slave to that debt. It's like anybody who owes money to someone else you know, owes them an obligation. But so Campbell, just, well, that's a good point. That, that, that's a good point. But speaking about being a slave, and very quickly, because we've run out of time, do you think... Rishi Sunak is a slave to the World Economic Forum. He's a bit of an acolyte, isn't he? Yeah, well, that's well, that's that's been put to me as well, and that may be the case. We'll, we'll, we will we will see. I hope he gets it that he was re he's really there to properly implement Brexit, to assert proudly British sovereignty, stand up for British people, and actually set a path forward for an independent UK. And I think if he, I think he seems to be a person who can do who can do that. And perhaps he can leave those globalist um, uh, sort of uh, tendencies behind him, shall we say.
Good man. All right. Thanks for your time, Campbell. Good to be with you, mate. That's former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman. And just before I go, here's a headline that will put a smile on the faces of people who refuse to take health advice from pasty, overweight politicians during the COVID lockdown. It's a picture of people outdoors getting exercise over a story saying that being fit makes your vaccine work better. Well, we all know that's a euphemism for admitting what most of us knew all along. Being fit makes your immune system work better. Never mind the vaccine. It reminded me of this photo I took of a park in Bondi in June last year. It was a dire warning for people to use this space, by which the sign meant exercise equipment, at your own risk. By then, it was obvious that the lockdown was not about our health and that there were only a few people benefiting from it all, and they included the manufacturers commissioned to produce and install stupid signs telling us to be afraid. It was also about pushing us to get vaccinated, and nobody pushed that better than the New South Wales vaccination minister himself, Brad Health Hazard. Only nine months ago, Hazard said, quote, to the disbelievers, the disbelievers that we still have in New South Wales, wake up to yourselves. The world is telling us that this virus will keep killing us and keep putting us in hospital unless we get vaccinated. So to them, forget your silly messages and let people have their vaccines, unquote. Well, try telling that to the people who have experienced adverse reactions to the vaccine, Brad. Minister Hazard announced his retirement from politics this week. He will not be missed. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 8 for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at 9. Good night.